Hello, we are back. Welcome to the Agents of Change in Environmental Health podcast brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm Brian Binkowski, your host and senior editor at Environmental Health News and the editor of Agents of Change. We have a really fun show for you today, but first I wanted to quickly remind you all to stay on top of our excellent fellows' work. Last week we published an essay from Dr. Yoshida Ornelas Van Horn on how to better involve and engage with participants in public health research. She talks about how we need to make sure the data we collect, the findings, need to get back to the communities that we're serving. It's a really great piece. And you can find that by clicking Agents of Change under the Special Projects tab at ehn.org. Also, the show wouldn't be possible without support, and today I want to call attention to one of those supporters, Rachel's Network. Rachel's Network is a community of women at the intersection of environmental advocacy, philanthropy, and leadership. Their mission is to promote women as impassioned leaders and agents of change dedicated to the stewardship of the earth. Learn more at rachelsnetwork.org. All right, on to the show. Today we are doing something a little bit different. I am talking to Dr. Vina Singla a senior scientist for the Healthy People and Thriving Communities program at the NRDC. A few months back, Singla spoke to our fellows and had a unique perspective as someone working at the intersection of science and policy. And she had really useful advice, so we wanted to have her on the show to talk to you all about it as well. Vina talks about the often arduous path of turning science into policy, finding confidence and a voice as a scientist, and describes a day in the life at the NRDC. Enjoy! All right. I am very excited to be joined by Vina Singla. Vina, how are you? I'm well. Thank you, Brian. How are you? I'm doing great. And where are you? Where are you uh, coming at us from today? I'm in beautiful San Francisco, California. Excellent. So before we get to your current work, I was wondering what initially got you interested in environmental health? It's a very interesting question. And the answer is quite personal for me, actually. My education and graduate training had nothing to do with environmental health. Uh, My graduate uh, research focused in cellular and developmental biology. And everything I learned about health through my research and education was that our health is determined by our genes, genetics, and our choices. And if you have poor health, maybe you had bad genes, or maybe it's your fault because you made poor choices. I don't think I even heard the term environmental health in all of my training, which is a problem. But while I was in graduate school, uh, one of my cousins in India passed away from cancer in his early 40s quite young, and he was survived by his wife and two teenage children. And they lived in the the state of Punjab in India, which is a heavily agricultural region. And I started reading and learning more about the high rates of cancer in the area, so much so that there was a train from that region to a major cancer treatment center. And it was called the Cancer Express because so many people would take it. 
And I learned about the heavy pesticide and fertilizer use, the decades of contamination of the air and water. And I started to have a more holistic understanding of the reality of our health that, yes, it's about our genes and our choices, but it's also very much about our environment and the interaction between all of those factors. And I also understood that healthy environments are not available to everyone equally and that the harms of pollution and toxic chemicals are largely falling on people like my cousin. And it's not because of his choices. He had no choice about where he lived. And I asked myself, why do some children get to grow up with their parents and his children don't now? And that really put me on my path to working in environmental health science and policy. So, so now your work is, is at this intersection of science and policy, but I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about this journey from conducting science to, to translating it for decision-making and what were some of your motivations? While I was in graduate school, I realized that I, I love science and that was what had motivated, excuse me, that was what had motivated me to go to graduate school in the first place. But I also realized that many of the aspects that were my strengths um, about science don't necessarily fit with an academic research career. So I really loved the kind of team aspect and collaboration and that's not necessarily emphasized in the academic world. It's a little bit more com competitive. And I, I really liked the education, translation, communication piece of it, to, uh, especially to different kinds of audiences, not just other scientists. Again, something that's not necessarily emphasized or rewarded in the academic research world. And being able to see the impact of my science in, in the real world, which generally when you're working in fundamental biology or science research can take decades um, and is not as tangible. So I, 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 I saw this disconnect between an academic career path and the things I, I liked doing day to day and how I wanted to be in the world and um, what kind of impact I wanted to have in the world. And that's when I started exploring other career paths and options, um, um, moving away from be, just being a, a, a scientific researcher. And I found that I had these interests and skills at the intersection of science, education, and communication. And I I taught for a few years um, at, at the university level and was really interested in policy and was looking broadly for jobs and careers in that area. And I saw a posting on Craigslist. So 
it's a lesson that you never know where your next opportunity might come from. It was a small nonprofit organization in Berkeley, California, called the Green Science Policy Institute. And I wasn't familiar with it, didn't know much about it, but they were looking for a scientist with a background in education to join their organization and do some science policy work. So that was my first introduction to to, to working in the science policy field and to an environmental health. And I learned a lot on the job. And I also just really felt like I found my niche, being able to still be engaged with the science and scientists and reading papers and talking to scientists, but then having this whole other side of my job where we were working on putting the science into action in a very tangible way and making policy change. And the Green Science Policy Institute, is that Arlene Blum? Is that the right place? That's that's exactly right. She's quite well known in the environmental health world. And I honestly wasn't aware of what a force of nature I was, I was going to, to work with. So it was a really great learning experience for me. It's funny to think that you found your career path, the same place that I found, you know, bicycles uh, on, on Craigslist, a very, it's a very American <laughs> story. So Vina, I've been asking everybody this, and I do want to hear some examples of, of your, your work now with the NRDC. Um, but so I've been asking everybody on the podcast, a defining moment that shaped your identity. And I know that's a big, broad question, and it can be personal, professional, but something between then and now. That's a that's a deep question, Brian. <laughs> I'd say pro- professionally that my time at the at the Green Science Policy Institute was very defining because it was the first time I felt like I was appreciated for the many different kinds of skills and strengths that I had out, outside of data analysis, scientific research, these 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 broader skills of being able to bring together a a team of people and build a good collaboration, design a good curriculum for our interns, communicate well with people other than scientists. These, these, These skills and areas that I really enjoyed, but were seen as extraneous to at to academic research. So finding that place where I was very a- appreciated for that that whole range of of skills and strengths that I brought, as well as the underlying passion and motivation for better public health and environmental justice, which again was seen as a little bit extraneous in the kind of research that I was doing, but to be in a, a sector where there was 
many people who, who felt like that. It felt very validating and positive. And I finally felt like I'd found my niche and the, and the place I needed to be. You mentioned environmental justice and your work now focuses on, uh, at least in large part on toxic chemicals and vulnerable populations. I was wondering if you can give some examples and fill us in on some of the top issues right now that you're focusing on. Yes. One of my main focuses is healthier, affordable housing. And it's an intersection of many issues like energy burden, energy efficiency, building electrification, tenant protections, healthier in, indoor environments, um, in, including healthier building materials. So there's there's folks from many different sectors working on these issues from, from a climate perspective, from a housing perspective, from a public health perspective. It's, it's quite interesting and uh, challenging, I would say, in ways to try to bring these many different areas together to think about. So energy burden and energy efficiency for one. Energy burden means that what we see when we look at how uh, what portion of, of your income you pay for energy, for your utilities, like electricity and gas, is that low wealth people, and especially in communities of color, pay significantly more, two times, three times, five times more of their income for their energy. So it's it's quite a greater um, percent of their, their total income that they're putting towards these costs. And sometimes people have to choose between, do I pay my electric bill or buy food? Do I buy this medicine or pay, pay this bill? So energy efficiency is seen as a way to start to ad- address some of those issues, but many programs aren't well designed for af- affordable housing. They might require upfront investments, for example, that affordable housing owners oftentimes just don't have. So they require different program design, different kinds of financing, even different kinds of energy efficiency measures because affordable housing is oftentimes multifamily buildings, not single family, whereas programs might be focused on single family. So it's thinking uh, thinking very broadly about many different issues that impact on housing quality and stability. And we know that housing quality and stability are hugely important for people's health. The other thing I'll say is that programs have generally been very siloed. So there's a program for lead paint a different program for energy efficiency, a different program for social services. So how can we integrate housing interventions to provide the best support and healthier homes for people living in affordable housing? And this has kind of been a neglected sector in research and policy related to the the built environment. I gave some examples and 
I'll give another one, which is a lot of the research on energy efficiency and health benefits is focused on single family homes. And we don't have as much information on multifamily homes and how we can how we can do energy efficiency interventions that are going to be the most beneficial for residents, their energy burden, and their health. So I'm working to advance research and policy for affordable housing to more holistically address housing quality. So what, what does that look like when you're, so this this kind of under the big broad umbrella of, of energy justice. So is it, so it sounds like you're getting a lot of different sectors together um, and are you, you do you go research first and then take the research to the policymakers and say, Hey, this is what we found. This is what we need to do. Or, or how does that shake out? It's a, a variety of, of approaches because programs are in very different places. Sometimes we have the opportunity to design a program from the ground up when there may be a, a new regulation or we got legislation passed that uh, creates a new low-income focus program. So we have the opportunity to say, here's, you know, here's the evidence we have, here's what we'd like to see in the program design. That's a really great scenario. But in many cases, there's existing programs and we're trying to tweak and revise them within within specific frameworks to improve them for the, the affordable sector, even though they were never quite designed for that. So it can be it can be more of a challenge. And many energy efficiency programs have very narrow definitions around costs and benefits and they're solely focused on energy costs and energy benefits and don't take into account uh, what what in the energy efficiency world is called non-energy benefits health (laughs) (laughs) it's kind it's kind of seen as the the co-benefit the (laughs) add-on i thought that was that was funny when I first came into the energy efficiency world that the main thing I worked on was the non-energy benefit. <laughs> so, so just that framing tells you right there, it's not seen as critical or essential. So trying to work within some of these frames that, that really don't account more holistically for how kind of housing quality and thinking about the different factors and and in some ways trying to fit a square peg into a round hole to make it work better for for what we're trying to do and we're thinking about broader systemic reform around around these issues as as well but that's a longer term proposition so whether it's energy justice or other programs you've worked on uh, I'm thinking of, you know, community empowerment, and I'm wondering what, how does that look, or what kind of efforts are made to kind of tap into the communities you're you're trying to help to see what they want and, and how you can best serve their needs. What we've done in the initiative that I've worked a lot with, that's called an Energy Efficiency for All, is 
formed coalitions in in specific states to work on energy efficiency, health and affordable housing issues, and tried to bring together stakeholders from the, the different sectors. So the community, affordable housing uh, owners and developers, energy efficiency advocates. So trying to get everyone together in one space, which somehow doesn't happen very often and form coalitions so that the needs of the community can can feed into the policy changes to to be made make that direct connection and because every local and regional context is so different it's really important to to do it at that state and regional level to be able to to address the the particular policy frames and policy rules regulations and the needs of the specific community so i know you've had some victories i was wondering if you could tell us about some of the policies that you've helped change absolutely that's the fun piece to, to talk about. Uh, I say, I say, when I talk about my work, there's oftentimes a focus on the problem and the scale of the problem, and it can feel really overwhelming. And this is why people move away from me at parties. <laughs> Back when we used to have parties, <laughs> be able to talk to people in person. So I I love being able to talk about how we actually know how to fix these problems, and and when we do, we see we see success and and better outcomes. I think a great example is flame retardant chemicals in furniture. That's in all, all of our homes and through many years of work, we understood that these flame retardant chemicals added to our furniture don't actually benefit fire safety. That was the intention to slow and prevent fires, but they don't work for that purpose and they're harmful. They come out of the furniture, they get into people's bodies and raise risks for many kinds of of diseases, especially for children. And we see higher levels in children and people of color, especially Black people. So we see these disproportionate exposures and impacts. But they're not necessary. We don't need them. It's It's the best case scenario where we can remove them and we don't need to add something else to to replace them. So we work to get policy changes in California first because the state had this unique flammability standard that was driving a lot of this flame retardant chemical use and it needed to be reformed and updated to provide better fire safety without the need for these toxic chemicals. So we were able to work on that first with um, lots of other folks. So there was a large coalition involved in, in all of these policy changes I'm, I'm talking about. 
work on that first. And then once that was done, that driver was no longer there. Um, but people could still use flame retardant chemicals if they wanted to. So then moving on to restrict, limit, ban the use of the worst and most dangerous flame, flame retardant chemicals from, from furniture and kids' products. And what we see now is almost a complete flip in the market when we look at flame retardant free furniture and furniture that contains flame retardants. It used to be majority, over 80, 90% contained flame retardants and a very small portion was flame retardant free. And at where we are now, it's a, it's a flip. Very small portion with flame retardants, most is flame retardant free. And we're seeing the levels of flame retardants in people's homes go down and the levels in people's bodies go down. So it's a great example of when we understand the problem, take policy action, we can get wide public health benefits. It is, it is nice to hear that there are victories and, and things that get changed because when you mentioned the idea of getting stakeholders in the same room, uh, affordable housing owners and uh, people living there. And I, I mean, to start from that seed uh, and then to have it grow into something, some kind of change down the road, it's good to point out those victories. And um, I'm wondering if there's anything, you sounds like you're really busy, but if there's anything you're not working on right now, but that you hope to work on an issue or a, a problem that you see that, um, that you'd like to work on in the, in the future. Yes, so many answers to that question. No, there is no shortage of problems. Unfortunately, I have I have to say, one one area of work that I would love to spend more time on actually relates to this this question that I raised earlier of if you ban or remove something harmful, what do you replace it with? If there's a need for for that thing. And what we've seen often is you ban one harmful chemical, you get it replaced with something that might be similarly harmful or untested. And later we find, find out it's harmful, this idea of the toxic treadmill, regrettable substitution. And what we want to see is informed substitution where there's a need, where there's a need for, for that particular function. And going through this process called alternatives assessment, where you look at what are the alternatives, including not having or using this thing, including a complete design change. And how do those stack up when we think about human health and the environment and potential hazards to it and who's impacted a kind of across the, the life cycle of, of these alternatives. Because often we see that disproportionate impacts when we're talking about chemicals can occur in the manufacturing and production phase and the end of life to low wealth and communities of color and um, if you only focus on the use phase, you might you might miss those. And I think a, a, a great example of thinking creatively about alternatives 
is PFAS, these per and polyfluorinated alkyl substances, also known as forever chemicals, that are used in a lot of food packaging because they make it kind of grease and, and water resistant. And one of the uses is um, microwave popcorn bags. Some of our um, colleagues over at the Environmental Justice and Health Alliance have been working with dollar stores for many years to uh, Im- have them have chemical policies and Im- improve the products that they're offering in, in, in communities. And in thinking about the microwave popcorn those dollar stores carried and the PFAS chemicals, the solution communities came up with is we don't need those microwave popcorn bags, have a bulk popcorn bin and paper bags <laughs> next to it. And you can take those home, add add your own oil and butter and pop it in the microwave. It, it completely removes the need for that function. And it's more cost effective because you don't have as much as much packaging. So that's a, I think that's a wonderful example of really thinking about the alternatives and having the the community be the one driving what's going to solve for their needs and what works for them and it's it's an area this idea of the alternatives assessment and Sometimes there is a technology gap of how do we meet this function or this need. And there just, I think there just hasn't been the investment and attention to that um, in, in the U.S. from the, the chemical industry and um, chemical users and, and others who could, who could really benefit from better solutions that don't re- rely on toxic chemicals. So I know right now things are different because of COVID, and I'm not sure your working situation, but a lot of the people I've had on are, are postdoctoral students and PhDs. So it's a lot of people in the academic space. And I'm wondering if you could just kind of tell us what a day in, a day in the life is like at, as a scientist at NRDC. And you've talked a little bit about how, about how this position is different than working in academia, but just kind of what how you spend your time at work. Lots of email. <laughs> I feel like that's a, the reality of life for for many of us in our jobs. So email is a primary communication tool, both internally, like within NRDC, within the organization, and at, externally for partners and collaborators. And generally, my day is a mix of meetings and calls in the before times, many would have been in person. Um, These days, all video or phone. So having some meetings and calls, which may kind of, some are internal, some are with external partners and stakeholders. Some might be presentations to uh, policymakers or talking to agencies and time where I'm, working independently, doing analysis, looking at data, or creating products like a blog 
or a fact sheet or um, putting together a new report or a, or a paper to be published in a, in a peer-reviewed journal. So some activities that are very familiar to academic scientists and, and others that are sort of they're very different. And uh, you you came and spoke to the Agents of Change fellows uh, for listeners who who wouldn't know that, but you were able to meet them. And one of the main goals of the program is to get more diverse voices in the environmental health space and amplify those voices. And I'm wondering, as a woman of color, if you can talk about any challenges that you face working in spaces that are often white and male. That's, I mean, both academia and environmental organizations right now. Yes. I think there's many ongoing challenges in in that regard. The work I'm focused on now in healthier, affordable housing, there's a lot of intersection with the green and sustainable building sector, which historically and currently is extremely white. And this this is a major issue because there's a big disconnect between the reality of what millions of people in affordable housing experience and their needs and who green building has traditionally served and the the focus of green building on energy to the exclusion of the many other factors that are important to housing quality. And people in the building sector can see equity and housing quality issues as a distraction, I'd say at the worst, or maybe a a add-on at at the best from their work that's focused on climate and energy. So a good example, I think, is spray foam insulation, where it's well-established that the chemicals in spray foam are respiratory sensitizers and asthmogens, and workers are exposed to these hazardous chemicals when they're installing spray foam. However, spray foam insulation is excellent in terms of energy efficiency performance in a building. So challenges I've run into are people who see the worker issues as outside their scope and not their concern because they're focused on the energy performance. But I think we're at a moment right now where more people are understanding that there is actually no single issue that racial justice, housing affordability, housing quality, and climate are connected issues. And you can't really separate them in the way that we have been so siloed. And I think my challenge and our challenge more broadly in the field is to try to build this new plane while we're flying it. Because we haven't really done this before, right? But there's an opportunity to really start the transformation of racist systems and policies, but we have to figure it out as we go along. So I certainly invite all of your listeners to join me because I need your help and I welcome it. 
And do you have any communication tips for, for early career scientists or otherwise that maybe from, whether it's from marginalized backgrounds, uh, you know, uh, first generation graduate or whatever that are in these, in these new spaces that maybe they don't have the confidence to speak truths or, or just speak up about uh, their expertise, things they know about? Um, any tips you have there? Yes, that can be, that can be a tough one. I'd say first and foremost is to just trust, trust your instincts and don't speak up if you feel unsafe in a situation. So trust your instincts and push yourself. So I would say don't regret situations where you didn't speak up and and later thought, I wish I would have said this, you know, but so don't regret that, but use that to be ready for the next time and find those opportunities to, to speak up. So in, in the past, I've certainly been in situations where I didn't quite feel the confidence or have the language to articulate what I wanted to say. So many years ago, I was in a meeting where we were discussing organizational hiring practices and and talking about how can we have a more diverse candidate pool. And one of the senior people in the meeting, the sort of pale male and yell type (laughs) that is very common in the environmental (laughs) world stood up and kind of gave this loud speech about how no one's going to tell him how to hire his people. And then the room broke into applause and I was very uncomfortable and, you know, people seemed angry. He seemed angry and I didn't quite know what was going on in it, but it didn't seem right to me. And now I know I can name that. It's a perfect example of white fragility, right? And I I took that opportunity, though, to, to reflect on that event and then try to find the words and read and listen to other experts and thinkers and literally write down what I would have wanted to say. And that really helped me find the words to speak up in the, in the future in, in other somewhat similar situations. And I've also found something that works for me often is to approach with a questioning frame rather than stating it can be helpful. So for example, to say something like, we said we're committed to diversity, but everyone on the panel is white. Am I missing something? Rather than saying as a statement, the composition of the panel doesn't meet our diversity goals. Because I found that asking a question can encourage engagement and and discussion and can be seen as less aggressive coming from someone. But I think everyone has to find the approach that works for them and their personality and how they like to interact and engage with people. And another thing that's been really helpful for me is observing my mentors and people that I think 
handle some of these difficult conversations or speaking truths really well. I've been in meetings where, where there's a conversation going on and I wish I could say something and struggling. And then someone steps in and says it perfectly and observing that and ask and going, what did they do that made it work so well? What was it the way they framed it, their tone of voice kind of, and it's often, it's many things, right? It's many aspects of, of how they do it. So observing that and then trying their tactics and even, and if it's a mentor, someone you talk with asking them, you know, how, what, what's your approach? Do you have advice for me? And trying those and then your own spin on some of those tactics and approaches. So you can, you can start to develop that individualized fit for yourself and how, how you want to be in those situations. That's really good advice. Uh, I especially like the idea of being in a situation and maybe not being comfortable or not being ready and reflecting on it later. Uh, I've noticed wor- working with Dr. Amizoto, who's who's my 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 uh, partner in crime here at Agents of Change. I've noticed that she is always prepared when we do anything. Uh, she is she knows exactly what she's going to say, and she says it perfectly. Uh, and I really respect it, and I've learned a lot from from watching her do that. And uh, it's a little different because th- th- I don't think these are spaces she's uncomfortable in, but. Um, I think the point remains it just kind of thinking through your thoughts ahead of time and being prepared. Um, I've learned a lot from Ami and I, and I think your tips were uh, very much in line with that. So Vina, I have one last question and I've been asking everybody this and it's not nearly as heavy as the first one that I sprung on you is what is the last book that you read for fun? Oh boy. The last book I read for fun. Do audiobooks count? Sure. I haven't, read a real book in quite some time but I've been loving audiobooks what was the last one I think it was Trevor Noah's Born a Crime which I highly recommend the audiobook version of that because it's it's him reading it and you you get all of his delivery, his vocal inflections. Like he's a he's a seasoned comedian, right? So the the book is quite quite entertaining and quite funny in many places, even though he's covering very serious subjects growing up in a in apartheid South South Africa. And what the title of the book, he was literally born a crime. It was illegal to have black and white people together. So it's it's very serious, but he he writes about it in a very accessible way, and I learned a lot actually about about the history of South Africa as well. So I I, I quite enjoyed it, and de- definitely recommend his his reading of it. Awesome. Well, Vina, thank you so much for taking time today. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you, Brian. All right, that is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit ehn.org and click the big orange donate button. 
can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram or at ehn.org under our special projects tab. And please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher where you can listen to this and all past episodes. The Agents of Change podcast is written, recorded, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team, Ami Zoda, Samar Ahmad, Gwen Raniger, and Raya Haddad. We'd like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeneh at gmail.com with suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just a chat. And sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage, agentsofchangeneh.com. Thanks for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join me next time when I speak with Agents of Change fellow Abrania Marrero, a PhD candidate at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Have a great week.